It wasn't until I really um, came into touch with Sun Young and Neela and Kaya Press that anyone was really excited about it and really interested in doing it. So this is a press that has, um, from its founding, been committed to innovative Asian American voices. And they have published so many important books. I mean, if you go and look in their website and look at the types of books that they've been publishing for years now, um, these are some of the most important books that um, have contributed so much to, um, to, to Asian American literature, but to literature in general. So um, when they expressed interest in publishing this book and then the loving attention um, to the book at every stage of you know editing the book and designing the book and producing the book um, it's just been in it's been incredible but I should have expected no less from this press I mean that that is what they have been doing from the start basically so uh, I'm su- I'm beyond pleased to be here tonight as part of a Kaya Press reading and to um, to have this book published by Kaya Press. I, told, I don't remember who I told, if it was Neela or Sun Young or if it was somebody else, but I was so excited about getting this book. I said, I'm going to, as soon as I open the envelope, I'm going to um, lift my shirt up and put it against my skin. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did when I got it. I just held it against me. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it was so funny. Anyhow, so long story short, this book is a novel written in the form of a string quartet, and it's actually written in um, what you would call uh, like a musical lines. So I'll show you a little page of it. it I mean, it has um, it has like the musical each. Uh, there are four characters, and each character is associated with one of the instruments of a string quartet, and they run, they don't all run all four at once, they kind of weave in and out. And in the beginning, especially, there's like a single voice or two voices that, but they read simultaneously. So the experience of reading the book is very different from the experience of hearing it read. It is almost a score for performance, but when you're reading it on the page, you can, and there are, there are, little prose sections in between two where it's one single voice. But when you're reading it on the page, you can backtrack and read the part. When you're hearing it, it is it is a performance piece, and voices will be simultaneously, and you may or may not hear every single voice at once. So we have two microphones up here, and sometimes people are going to be reading simultaneously, and occasionally all four voices will be happening at once. So basically, I've invited my fellow Kaya authors and editor to re- to do this choral performance with me. So I'm just going to give you the background of the four characters so you know who is who. So Abir is going to be playing the first violin in the string quartet. And this character's name is Sonia Chang. And she is a violinist in the story. And she's waking up on the morning, this book takes place over the course of one single day and she's waking up, it starts in the morning and she is waking up at the beginning of the story on the day on which she is um, supposed to perform a concert. So that's Sonia Chang and she is going to be performed by Abir. I am performing the second violin, Roel, who is a, a yoga teacher named Rizwan Sayed. And he is actually in a class teaching. 
He's teaching a class, a yoga class, as this book starts, an early morning yoga class. The viola, so we'll be, so Abir and I will use this microphone here, actually. Um, the, thir- the viola role is a character named Jody Merchant, and Neela is going to be reading Jody. And Jody is, um, Jody's how the book starts. She's the first voice that comes into the book. And to me, she's kind of the hero of the book. She's a suburban um, uh, working mom, and her husband is kind of absent in a way. I mean, she's the one who has to do everything. She's got a lot of weight on her shoulders, and she is not very... um, introspective about her life because she doesn't have time to be (laughs) she's just got to run from thing to thing to thing of course by the end of this book you know obviously we are going to see some transformations in all of these characters but we're only going to read the first um, very opening of the book so that's Jody that's the brief background of Jody she'll be on this mic over here with um, and Hari is going to play the cello role who is a guy named Pratap and he um, he's a working man he works in an office he works in a cubicle he's like so many of my cousins and you know South Asian um, uncles and cousins Um, he also is so you have these very two high-minded characters the violinist and the yoga teacher all they think about is like the drama of their life and what they're going to do and then you have these other two characters who you know, they don't really have time to think about all this stuff. They are not very introspective people. They are just living their life. But Pratap is interesting because he is um, war- he is obs- kind of worn down with some old tragedy in his life that is going to surface throughout this day. So that's the basic background, and you're going to hear these characters' voices weaving in and out of each other, and sometimes simultaneously, frequently simultaneously. And we're just going to read the opening um, section of this book. So you're going to, we're going to share, we're going to share Mike, but you should probably co-hold your own. And then uh, you're going to be over here with Neela. All right, let's do it. Sound of the phone ringing. Sudden and dark. Sonia. Always the long sounds in her ear looping into her sleep. Last year, Jody drank tequila for the first time. The hardwood floor. Imagined it liquid dessert it in so her well, mouth. Her throat, see the her stomach parched. Of Empty motion. sand, wave after wave of sand, just endless ochre, stretching away. Is distracting. Could years Yellow be like that also? On nightstand opening. Jody feeds herself on thoughts like these, philosophical, in the lyrical, feeling. poetic. The thoughts as she engages the prosaic tasks of the morning and day. Her, disappear. her cello case is still there, packed in the very back still, of the corner closet. What Behind skates, kids' toys and games, to the earth all turning, the winter coats, boxes of books. A landscape of accumulation, is an opening visual proof the of the sedimented years. Herself dangling. Still, window, Jody imagines that one of these days she might be able to play this moment, her world of yellow. Given time in her day, some private place, space in her mind to practice. Practice the way she used to, an hour a day, dedicated to the time. Imagine you can disappear. 
Here is the sound, Sonia thinks, into a flower. But now, and then the flower, the shadows, and the younger child is crying for oatmeal. The older child is in the other room. Yourself, his voice rolling, <coughs> playing over video minute, games, falling in sheaves from the sky, a blanket. And it seems she can't even remember what silence sounded like in her, an echo, distant sounds, or a moment. The when only the, the sound she could hear was from her bones and not her ears. The sound of the cello in her hands, or the sound of her She's own breath. Again. Unable to forget. He's envious of the stillness. He wishes he could say, feel the same Utterly peace unable. that he is somehow able to lead them to through the, the road of their breath. Still appears. It is part of the fiction. And joyous in all the family portraits. But yoga is the cessation of the mind's fluctuation. Rizwan reminds himself. Smiling, eight years old, still, from cancer, he remembers how it feels. Breathing, lies back even through the most difficult position, when the body Drawn across is twisted, the, to die, the organs compressed. To Last year, back when his the aunt had sickened, died quickly of Drona cancer, Rizwan couldn't breathe. Out of his body. The moment All of suffocation when he heard the news was the worst. The surface of the word trembles, the air rises. They fail to fill the cup that is broken. Students, he heard the students breathing. He remembers he hadn't seen Auntie for months. Even the garland of a thousand the skulls that followed could never approach the actual pain of living. Rizwan at the funeral, Sonia, the feeling of being pressed flat against the bare life to see her body. Pratap wishes now, he could find an art even or a practice that would breathe into he his skin, picture her. suspend him in his how existence, pretend his, to his students the that he understands of other years, how to breathe, and the present being. Pulled taut, but here it didn't matter. Apart from here each other, in the class, he could flood himself with tears. She has never felt in her life stretched this way. From the but tips rather of the, the present and past flooding each toes. other and Pratap floating up to light, tightly. balancing on the surface. In these quiet moments, a memory. Empty surface. His father standing with him in the well in the temple pool and dark after the sweltering day. They stand there, his father's rough and soft hands on his shoulder, looking up. At the circle of the blue, they are happy now to be silent, to be with each other in the cool well, things. to forget all their complicated dramas. He remembers a child waking lesson, from the memory the black of being in Egypt with his father, suddenly returned God, to his present life and realizing a focal his younger point of the brother, the sweet cursing through never be alive again. His auntie had been the illusion of permanence and offered by both art and rivers was nothing but sufferance. That it was now Perhaps, covered by translucent but not likely material. There was her no possessing anything no touched rather being possessed. Otherwise, and Auntie and had explained, it would dissolve. There would be nothing left. Pratap imagined his breath the sun washing through his body. Dissolving into the window. Rizwan imagined the, the black stone the dispersing itself, lingering into in the, the palms of all the pilgrims. <laughs> Scattering itself, perhaps revealing itself and seeing the fortune creases. Pratap felt himself washed into and out of his body. By them home. 
And so he, he scattered their stories with a terrible that. scattering the with one close to himself. He hopes the spirit is more than flesh. The, the body, what happens the when violins come warm and thrumming dust in their vibrating like a thing living a perfect and exciting that it would take all the pilgrims past and present to place the stone come out together her eyelids but that he is alive music breath sing it is seven in the morning and the alarm rings for a second time Jody struggles to rise it is the day after Thanksgiving so she has to wait for long minutes at the end of the driveway before the traffic on the main road thins enough for her to be able to pull out the sky is cold and gray, and she confesses he to herself, in sliding into Roll traffic, she adores this weather. So cold that even the puddles that of muck on the roadside have frozen. When Different she walked the to the car, her nostril hairs froze quickly. The pores that, of the skin of her face he would collapse, and hands hardened like glass to the point of shattering. He, he could easily vomit or die. The morning drive from home to Roswell Park usually takes 40 minutes. Down Transit Road, clogged with early morning traffic, nearly unmoving. In the morning, creeping past Walmart, past Fridays and Applebee's, past the mall, the Kinko's, the Acura dealership, opaque window shields each, asking her a question. She didn't know what the questions were. Regal super cinemas, drive-thrus, coffee shops. Car wash, the video beautiful. store, exit ramps, Dick Sporting Goods, Chili's, Red Lobsters, Barnes and Noble. The quivering cores and suddenly, Jody's thinking about groceries, all the shopping left to do. Born across it to be able to forget. She hasn't eaten organic produce in years. She's always reading about. The benefits. Of life is back. Likewise, Thick this morning, flipping through the speed dial on like her car radio, that always begins the same. Top it's twenty him. hits, Awkward classic rock, country, from all the NPR, alternative rock. Usual, but they always sound the same to her all the flat, time. Exactly the same to her. The same. In the early Sonia raises her head. For some reason, this morning she's dissatisfied. Why should she listen to this? Listening to the Fumbles lyric. with the dial as she is driving through static and angry sounds and aggressive morning shows, banal commentary, and ceaseless advertisements. Why is it always her who's stuck with the shaft? He remembers what his brother was told at the very bottom of the ocean, swimming, swimming for the sun. Uh, thank you very much, and we will talk. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit in the end in question period. Who's after me? Ah, please welcome Abir. But I have to pee, so. Wait, are you really? I just have to pee. So, let's do a tap dance or something. Do you want to go? Should we? Let's. Let's move on to Hari then. Yes, thank you. Welcome. 
I'll read until she comes back, and then we'll switch and come back again, <laughs> going back through voices. Um, there are a few multiple voices in this as well. I apologize, uh, mostly to cause him for coughing through part of through part of the part. So you missed a few moments. A warning: Don't slice an apple toward yourself, because apples have no blood of their own. And here. <laughs> To read from her memoir, please welcome Abir Hawk. Um, I'm going to show you. So my memoir is set in three geographies: in Nigeria, the States, and Bangladesh. So I'm going to show you a little poetry video that my partner Josh Steinbauer and I made together. That's said in Bangladesh, and I'm going to read um, after that. It's just one minute. I'm going to read a short chapter from the Nigeria section. So this is the video. I think I just pressed play. <laughs> this is not my laptop, so... No? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So each of my chapters starts with a weather condition and a poem. So that poem actually started the chapter, one of the chapters in the Bangladesh section. Um, I'm going to read a chapter from. Uh, I lived for the first 13, 13 years of my life in Nigeria, and I had a really strong Nigerian accent when I came to America at age 13, which was mocked out of me quite quickly. But I'm going to uh, read this chapter in that accent. And um, I was in sixth grade, and that's, maybe that's all you need to know. Fusion, 83 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, so we had to um, sing the Pledge of Allegiance every day in the morning, so I'll sing it to you. I'm sorry, because I'm not a good singer. <laughs> I pledge to Nigeria, my country, to be faithful, loyal, and honest, to serve Nigeria with all my strength, to defend her unity, and uphold her honor and glory. So help me, God. Tiger, tiger. We have started to learn William Blake's old ode to the tiger. We chant with enthusiasm, if not nuance. 
The heavy rhyme and meter drown any sense that might have accompanied the unfamiliar words. We are too concerned with getting the sounds in the right order to think about what the poem actually means. The University of Nigeria Primary School operates under an almost militaristic regime in its ample tree-demarcated square in the middle of town. Even the classrooms, simple one-floor structures arranged in sets of three, resemble barracks. Mr. Eze runs grade 6B with an iron fist and a cane made of the stiffest branch our class monitor, Namdi, can find in the brambles outside. No questions are allowed in class, only answers or silence. We have three, we three weeks to learn this poem, ten minutes at the end of each school day. Every few days, Mr. Eze will add a new verse to the right side of the blackboard in his perfect and precise penmanship. At the end of the three weeks, he will erase the poem from the board and we will recite it by heart in front of the entire primary school at assembly. On the first day, we wait silently inside the classroom while Mr. Eze fumes over his last cane, broken and useless at his feet. Outside, Namde is smoothing the branch he has broken off a tree and is walking reluctantly back to the classroom. When he enters, Mr. Eze walks swiftly and heavily over to the door and takes the cane from his hand. Our monitor is good-looking, tall for his age, taller even than most of the secondary school boys. This allows him a natural authority that, when coupled with his respectable school marks, makes, his, makes him an obvious choice for the coveted position of class monitor. He slips into his chair with an easy grace and hunches over his worn wooden desk at the front of the row, nearest the door. I watch him from the back of the classroom as Mr. Eze waves his new cane at us to begin. And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? As half the class stumbles over the word sinews, Mr. Eze raises his cane and snaps it down on Namdi's desk. His bald head is shining with sweat and droplets are forming above his forehead. Silence, he roars. Sinews, not sinews. How many times will we have to do this? <laughs> he starts down the aisle and asks each person in succession to pronounce the word. A slight deviation results in a sharp and painful rap on the back of a hand or arm or back. Mr. Eze seems to be in a generous mood this time. We spent most of the last poem on our knees on the rough cement floors with rising welts on our backs and legs and butts. Still, I pray for the break bell before he gets to the third row and me, and within moments I hear a deliberate clang. We pour out of the classroom into the light and space of the sprawling schoolyard. The back fields are filling with boys setting up soccer matches. I head over to the trees by the empty basketball courts to do what all the girls do, which is play clapping games. There are many, but the one we never fail to play at least once a day, rain or shine, is Oga. Oga is a complicated dancing and clapping game that involves trying to match balletic foot positions with whoever is leading the game. Match one of six possible foot placements with the leader as she faces off with each girl in the semicircle and you become the leader. Everyone has a different dance and clap style for Oga. Mine is low-key and short, nothing fancy, but I am as addicted to this game as anyone else. We would play for hours if we could. 
our hands clapping a ceaseless rhythm under the ironed blue sky. In the second week of our practice, the headmistress pays grade 6B a visit. Our stout teacher waves us into immediate silence as he stands in the doorway and speaks in low deferential tones to her. Although they are the same height, her crisp and colorful headdress makes her seem much taller than him. Mr. Eze returns from his conference with a renewed fervor. Our last poem, Journey of the Magi, set a standard with its complicated referential lines, and the headmistress is expecting nothing less from our next recital. We start chanting again. What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain, what the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp. We all wonder what an anvil is. <laughs> Even if we did know, it would not help. The rest of the poem is a mystery. Was the tiger on fire? Was it in hell? At least it's more exciting than our, most, than our last poem. That one was boring, on top of being co- incomprehensible. We never figured out what a magi was, and that was just the title. <laughs> that the tiger at least sounds dangerous, full of motion and dark light. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? In the third week, we are almost enjoying ourselves. We sway with a rigid and swinging meter of each verse, the sounds stabbing out of our mouths with force and a measure of confidence. Even Mr. Eze seems pleased with our progress. The canings have been infrequent, and our regular subject material has been metered with a lighter touch. When the three weeks are up, our class lines up in the assembly grounds in front of the headmistress's office. Assembly starts off each school day. Grades four through six are arrayed in a square horseshoe, and the headmistress stands in the opening facing us. The sun is beating down, but we don't notice. The morning classes, kindergarten and grades one through three, have just been let out, and they are streaming out of class, some through the tall hedges and down the road, others into the red dirt parking lot to meet their waiting parents. We stand quietly until the headmistress appears. My pinafore is ironed, pleats perfect. I want to tug at my shirt collar, but it's almost time, so I don't move. She waves her arm at us, and in unison, we we launch into the Pledge of Allegiance. Then, Mr. Eze leads his class to the front of assembly, where the 52 of us stand in five neat rows beside the headmistress. I stand in the front row as per height. Our teacher smiles at us, and for a moment I am so stunned at this rare display of warmth that I almost forget the first word, tiger. It's a good starting line. Better than a cold coming we had of it from the Magi poem, which seems weak and anticlimactic. Cold is only in the British books we read, with pictures of snow-covered two-story houses, with children wearing so many clothes we feel choked just looking at them. The tiger, though, is a creature of the tropics, lauded in folk tales, pictured in textbooks, its cousins trapped and wilting in our little town zoo. The tiger we understand. Thank you. Hi again.
Um, I'm really grateful to be reading at Skylight Books with Abir and Kazim and Neela. Um, what a beautiful, what a beautiful piece both of you have written. I'm, I'm stunned. Um, this is in uh, three different voices as well. In some moments, I will try and switch a little bit between them, but I won't just return to my first voice too. <laughs> Yeah, I was born and raised there as well. A begging. Animal of an almost god. Please sit for me and dance inside your sitting. I too would love to carry up a king. Coil my tail around him, land in rivers, bathe while that king sputters in silence. I would rather you than a god who sings bloodlines into law. Sing my song instead. This song, its insolence forgives you for forgiving. I only want to grant you the broom touch in my voice. I see the dust and the dust hungers. The underside of a hunter's arrow wheelbarrowed. Everything I do, a coring of home. Get this, peeling land and something small of you underneath. A pavement sweeper's truth. My memories peck like crows around a high bar table. Ash tray between them for barbecue pit. I count the attacks. Motherfuck those days. I count those days of my deepest belief in God. I am something to crow to. Perhaps what I am is a dance, wandering in search of bodies. Part of their diet's livelihood, tamarind and guava, those trees the villagers raised. I prefer the way you tell it, auntie. How the bicycle whose bell I rang swerved my hands. A wheel chains greasy acrobatics at a rut. Then the fruit I stole rolling away as you watched my foot try to pedal a cloud. A bicycle nailed to the ground for balance. That was our loudness under a blue roof when dry sands shift to make way for a cutlass. We unbraided forward, turning over our ribbons to the hands behind us. The shared space of a makeshift bus stop filters everything my lungs don't miss. This coat hook inside a house that was an orchard buried beats its chest for the texture of its looming work. How much sky a fallen tree can bear, you said. Our agreement is the space we swept our piles of leaves toward. That gathering sound, I dog ear its page in the holy book of laughter sounds that aren't laughter. <laughs> <laughs> 
My auntie's loudness remains standing. Sweetness, here is a potato net by which I wash my morning pots. Yard concrete, the contour of my back and dipped from sweeping, climbs into my kitchen, pickpockets my tongue of spit, of salt, and early shovels imperative for dawn, the clench inside of falling leaf tongues, my window dusts my blooming, rice, take up your char from the bottom pot. Patience as knives sharpening to their division work. My loudness, it remains. Ka, katak, katak, katakating. When a rock script Grating over their braces, trains carry flies from one continent's edge to another's. When the flies disembark, they must contend with those who claim the town as their own. A pavement sweeper's truth. I was a soldier. Yes. A man commanded squat, jiggle, groan. Jiggle, groan, squat among the notes of a trombone. A man deployed, counting on the gratitude in hairshine. If the roadside deity doesn't eat the coconut you offer, pray for a beggar to stumble, cutlass in hand, upon the fruit. A pavement sweeper's truth. On the morning of my death, there is no pronouncement. No sage will sing that the arrow knocked and pointed at my cheek. Since the morning of my death is complete, come life. Feathers no longer flower in number. They leave their perch by Kali's ear to travel the elliptical path from her belly to my belly. My comfort, she calls me home. My killer, Krishna, avatar of preservation, his golden discus spinning from his finger into my belly, echoes my belly in his belly. And we cling to the languages we've lost with the ones we cling to we. Thank you. Does anybody have any questions for anybody? <laughs> I actually have a question. I was going to ask Kazim. Oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, off, off mic, so to speak. But I don't know if you remember. <laughs> off mic. It sounds exciting. About 12 years ago. And I, I really intended to publish it, but I just wasn't able to. I remember I, when I saw you in the audience, it reminded me of how long ago I wrote this book. I mean, it was really in 2002 two or three. It was earlier. It was one of the first things I wrote, actually. And David wrote, kindly wanted to try to publish it. Um, and we couldn't figure out the logistics of like, how does this book actually get, we were thinking about, we were think I had been thinking about doing it like as an accordion kind of book that would unfold. David had this crazy idea of the separate, so there are separate pieces in it. He had this idea of a box that had like 
scrolls in it. I don't know if you remember, you described it to me. We went out, I think it was that at the um, Poetry Project in New York City, it was one of the New Year's Eve marathons, if I'm right about it. One of those, and then you were, we, we left and we went to some little coffee place and we're sitting there and talking about it. Yeah. I mainly remember more corresponding with you about it. But, uh, no, we went and talked about it. Yeah. The thing is, that the, the problem was not the logistics. The problem was that the, the publishing venture that I was trying to launch, I sort of abandoned. And yeah. instead I moved to India and started studying music. I think that's appropriate. <laughs> And then I started a publishing company two years after that. I was so delighted so. to see that not only that you were reading, but, but I thought, is this really the same book? And I see that it it's the is. same. So I, I congratulate you. Thank you. And it's perfect to have you here. <laughs> it's like f- um, full circle of that experience. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, it can be both. I mean, all along when I was describing this book to people, the obvious question was, have you tried to um, do a string quartet because I teach at Oberlin? And, or have you done uh, tried to record performances of it or do a CD with the book? And none of those things ever occurred to me while I was writing it. So I did, I guess, kind of think of it as a solitary experience. But now that the book is out there in the world as a score and it's published, thank God, Kaya is like so incredible and they hired this amazing designer um, uh, incredible designer named Jason, whose last name I can't remember. Picasso. Jason Picasso, who um, designed the book beautifully that can be used as a score the way the book is done. So it can have a life of its own now. Um, people what about an audiobook? Performance, audiobook, there's a lot of different, different things. Yeah, sound installation. Um, the last time, so this is the second time we've actually done a choral reading of it. The first time was at St. Edward's University in Austin, Texas last week. And at that reading, which was the very first reading, um, the students had this idea, which I kind of like, which is that there would be four separate microphones, but in four corners of the room. And so that whoever you were closer to, that would be the dominant voice for you, and but the other three voices would be, I mean, they would be on a sound system, so they'd automatically all be together, but that you might be closer to one person's actual voice and have a different experience of the performance. And then the second idea that the students had, which I liked, is that the the audience wouldn't actually be seated either so that throughout the performance you could gravitate towards one performer or another. So it would actually be like more of a gallery space type of situation when there wasn't chairs. So all of these things could happen. Um, I don't think it would be me that would organize them. Now the book is out in the world. We're going to try to and maybe invite some of those things to happen. And then as I read from the book, because I will be reading from the book you know, for throughout the next year probably, um, I will probably try out multiple different iterations of, um, of um, performing it. Thankfully, I'm like at that point in my career where I can do diva things like <laughs> have my agent tell the, you know, whatever university I'm going to, like, we need to have four mics and we need to have no seating, you know, like these, <laughs> these kinds of things. And counterintuitively, um, the more kind of nutty demands like that you have, the more, quite more seriously you are taken by those universities. <laughs> so... We'll see. (laughs) 
I have a question for Hari. <laughs> so your book is a lot about, well, it's about place. And so all the geographies that you've occupied also come into it. Can you talk about what that means to your book and like how it actually... I think... Um, thank you. Um, I, think, I think what happened was they bled into each other. Give it up for V, ladies and gentlemen, please. He rushed you from work. Come on, you <laughs> You all probably are all rushed you from work. Um, um, yeah, I've lived in many places, but every space I feel a little bit displaced in. When you've lived in a bunch of spaces, you have that feeling. Um, and so I needed the book not to be located. I've written a lot of work that is located or about a specific, specific space. But I wanted... It's to feel like city that you either know and don't know at the same time. And so that was, that was kind of like the impetus behind it. And I mean, at the end of the day, what happened was I, was, I went, I, you know, I live in San Diego right now. I went to Comic-Con and Greg Van Nikut was an amazing, amazing uh, sci-fi fantasy writer who you should read, um, was giving out these books and we took one and it's called California Bones and I was on the bus and I was like, oh fuck, that's the title of the book. And then it was The Flayed City um, and, I, and, I, and I turned uh, to Liz and I was like, I think this is the title of the book. And she turned and she was like, yeah, yeah, that's the book title. <laughs> It's clear. And then she continued reading the book that she was reading. She was like, this is a really good book right now. Um, and so in that moment, it became clear that, it w- that I had the freedom to imagine it as a secondary world. If for those who read a little bit of genre, a secondary world is very close to this one, but slightly slant. Um, and that gave me the freedom to make it actually, in a strange way, kind of the counterintuitive, right? It became closer to the places I was imagining in my head or feeling in my body, actually, more than that. They came me closer to the spaces I was feeling in my body and have felt in my body by not having to have them be one place and then another place. And then this city which is desert and this city which is rainforest and this city which is at the edge of jungle and, uh, and savanna. Um, but the feeling of what the city was. You mean as in terms of something to write, or just in general? Just when you, you, you were... There's a, when you did the audiobook, that it was, you had to actually read the story yourself. Yeah. I was just wondering for you, which, when you went through that process, which part of your own life were you the most surprised to then read about, or reread, or read? Yeah, it's, uh, Hari and I were talking about this earlier today. Um, there's something about writing something down that just kind of freezes it into uh, place, um, accurately or not. So uh, in a way, it, it, it's, it's, there's something nice about the limbo before you actually say something or write something down, because all the different versions of that 
experience exist, and then once you write it down, it somehow sort of um, limits all of them and just narrows it down into that one story. And the thing that I like to think about with actually writing any kind of memoir or nonfiction is that it's just one version of the story, and it's the version that I chose to tell at that point in my life. And if I were to write the same book now, it would be a different story because I'm a different person and looking back at it from a different point in time. And uh, it's it's a, a bit of a comfort also to know that know that it's probably a comfort to other people who remember things differently than the way I remembered them. And so I want to have that sense of uh, space when I think about writing. Um, in terms of what I would... Yeah, it, so yeah, in a way I've sort of like burned that bridge by writing the stories that I have because now I can't be like, well, you know, that tiger, tiger story, like that's just the way it happened. And it could have happened another way, but now it's now in on paper and so I can't really uh, think about it differently. So... Maybe that's, that's a reason not to write, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> or a reason to write fiction, so you can always just retell it a different way. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, what happens when you actually write something down. I have a question for Abir also. Um, you know, uh, this is my first exposure to this work and to your writing, and so what we got, I mean, what I got from this, you read several pages was such uh, an acuity of memory that uh, it's kind of like all of the detail of this experience of this young woman in, in this particular place. And I just wonder, is the whole work kind of like that? It's like, you know, uh, at, at the peak of acuity in different places, but it's all real time. Is that, is that how you've done this book? I'm not sure I have the ability to judge that. Um, one of the things is when I moved from Nigeria to America, it was this huge shock, and it was like a, a break between two parts of my life. And so it was like a trauma. And the things that happen before to a place, like if you look back at a place that you no, can no longer visit, then they sort of clarify and like become this tableau. So for me, Nigeria is like that. It's this childhood, it's this rose-colored place that just froze. And then there's ways that you experience things as a child, which maybe are more visual, not less emotional, but like are less able to be processed uh, articulately in, anyway in language. And so that's maybe why the Nigeria pieces might come off more sort of you know, intensely in that way a way that you experience sensorily, uh, like sensately. Um, but yeah, I don't know, like the rest, I mean, I go into teenage years in America and that's probably a little bit more emotion rather than like space. But space is, is something I'm obsessed with, like hurry, we're both like geography, you know, like that's, we cannot write without talking about it, so, yeah. I guess another part of my question is just about sort of the practice of memory. I mean, did you, as you went into this writing, were you, did you find that you were really clarifying your memory and, and making it strong, you know, that you had more detailed memory than you might have not having done this as an exercise? Yeah, memory is something I'm obsessed with, so it's, it's an interesting question. I'm, I'm actually writing a novel about memory, but... Um there's a little story in, my, in, in the Nigeria section where my sister and I got these two dresses, a red one and an orange one, and we wore them. And then a few weeks later, we wore them again, and we had a huge fight about whose was whose. And as an older sister, I totally bullied her into saying, no, this was mine, and I made her cry, and then I wore the dress I wanted to wear. And then a few months later, I looked at a picture 
of when we had first been giving the dresses, and I was totally wearing the other one. And, uh, and I realized in that moment that memory was this treacherous thing and uh, not to be trusted, and I was like, I'll be a little nicer to my sister for just a little while. Um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's, I don't know, like, I don't know that we, any of us can trust it, uh, either, you know, and, and certainly on, after doing research for, on memory for my novel, it's something that's extremely malleable. And also, if you write it down, that be, in, in some ways, the research shows that in remembering it, you replace your original memory of the thing. And so you can actually distort the original just in the process of either writing or even just remembering the thing. So all of it is a lie. <laughs> Great to, to hear you guys read, and I think this this night, this event, and this everybody's work has been so great. We put on events that was totally about these books, and by three brown authors at this time, and not 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 promoted it at all in terms of an event for diversity. It was just an event of three authors with new books. So I'm really excited about that. But um, obviously, it's something that I think about a lot as the editor of High Press, which focuses on Asian diasporic work. And just really interested, we're really interested in transnational writing. And I think this, these books, especially Beer and Hari's book and their backgrounds, you know, maybe a little bit about how important that is to your work, this idea of identity. And then for Cosm, like, I'm really interested in, in the idea. I read Jody Merchant, I think her part, what, like, how is it to write this this character, this white woman? I'm assuming she's white. Well, <clears throat> do you want the spoiler alert? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, Jody. Jody is Indian. Her name her name is Jyoti, and it doesn't come in until halfway through the book. Um, but she pa- she quote unquote passes for white in the first half of the book. Um, well, Indian people, you know, there are people in India who are ethnically Indian who look like any white person that you would see walking down the street in L.A. Um, I have aunts who are whiter than any white person in this room who have like <laughs> chestnut brown hair and blonde. I have a cousin who has blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, I have cousins who have red hair and green eyes. I mean, India is a very cosmopolitan place and a very mixed, um, mixed racially place. There are Parsi people in India who are, you know, Iranian descent people. Um, my family has Egyptian and Iraqi descent people in it. My cousin with red hair and green eyes is, you know, he has Iraqi. Um, this is what Iraqi people. Iraqi people do not look like. Who is that guy who played the Iraqi role in Lost? He's like a Punjabi actor. You know who I'm talking about? What's his name? You know who I'm talking about? He was like 50 most beautiful people, whatever. <laughs> but he's Punjabi, but he played an Iraqi role. And I remember talking to all my American friends saying, like, this is not really what Iraqi people look like. But anyhow, the dark brown fetish. No, um, I, um, you know, I was really interested in what lay underneath um, the, tr- the truth of the, the surface, basically. And so now we're talking about you know, kind of like, what is America? Like, what, you know, what is this, what is the, the face of this country? What is the nature of this country? And it is, it is not just that now it is 
a very cosmopolitan country made up of people of different races and different religions and ethnicities, but it, it always had been from the very beginning. Um, the very, very, very earliest Americans in colonial times, there were tons of Muslims in this country. Tons and tons of Muslims in this country because when we're talking about the um, African laborers who were brought over here enslaved, they were Muslim. So there was a Muslim um, presence in America from 1600, whatever it was. And Asian people were here from the very beginning and Latino people and Native people. So it's not just... Now, yes, in the last 60 years, we have kind of reversed the genocidal impulse to kind of crush and erase the presence of all these people from the American... um, profile but had always been from its so the myth of the Judeo-Christian America is completely false it's a constructed myth it was never true from the beginning it was never true and um even if you go back in the Salem witch trials for example at the heart of it was this Caribbean Indian woman who was, you know, who's the only one who survived, by the way, because she confessed to being a witch. So she wasn't actually executed and she disappears from historical record. But at any rate, what I was trying to write about in this book was, you know, these people who have all of these different connections and all of these different threads that bound them and all of the different things that made them um, into who they are. And so those revelations kind of happened really slowly. In Jody's case, the revelation was that she was actually Indian, but it was also a trick. Now I've given you the spoiler alert. I'm terribly sorry, but it was an answer to the question. But that was a trick on the reader, too, because the reader, too, just assumes the default of a character named Jody Merchant to be a white character. And also, you said that's it was. I think you were saying it's related to like where you, where you grew up, that suburban description. Yeah, yeah. And Merchant is, but Merchant is an Indian name. It's a Parsi name. Veena Merchant is, was a was a publisher of India. Uh, yeah. It's in India. I mean, there are, you know, Hoshang Merchant, a great in, gay Indian poet. Natalie Merchant, the singer, who's also Indian. Yeah. Yeah. So so that was like a kind of a joke. I mean, I named her very specifically, you know. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I think here in Kazem, I'm just thinking about because Kazem is a, kind of an American writer. This book has such connections to that. Like, you know, for you guys, as, you know, do you see yourselves as, I guess, American writers? I'll love that over to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't. Um, and I mean, even though, uh, I mean, I, I immigrated at age 12 um, to Canada, and I don't think of myself as a Canadian writer either. Um, and I am. You know what I mean? Like, the stories that get told are stories of these places. So it's not, um, you know, how I think of it. How I think of it is both like that that always outside and at the same time, you know, as cousins explaining, like but these stories have always been here at the same time. You know? Um so in in the sense of claiming, in the sense of claiming, yeah. But I mean in a sense but that's partially because um as 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 cousin was saying, like like I th- I think of myself as writing on Kumeyaay land or writing on um on Coast Salish territory, um and in a sense always as a visitor. Um and so and so that um 
and so in that sense the 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 book ends up the identities in the book are like identities of 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 migration and relationship to place in a sense um and uh and i mean then if i talk about mine my my experience of it like there's you know um a friend of mine who passed, he has this amazing, amazing line, and he's like, rhyme, immigrant, searching for identity, and so we adopt hip-hop and rock the assembly, and that's his experience, you know? Um, so I, like, I understood more about hip-hop than I did about Canada when I was, like, 14, you know? Or, um, or actually about... I probably understood more about ABBA, too, at the same time, because, like, that's what my mom was playing on her record thing, and her, she was playing ABBA and Prince, and my dad was playing, um, like, old prayer records of, like, the Bhagavad Gita and shit, and, like, so, like, that's closer to what I know in my household as a person who, you know, was born and raised in Nigeria, has that as his oldest voice, and has that, um, you know, we were, we were joking on the train, we didn't end, end up doing it. In a sense, we were joking on the train about like how our oldest voices um, and the sound of each place is different. Like, um, if I go to South Van and you hear me talk, <clears throat> it goes more to here, and I can't do it unless I'm there. You know what I mean? Like, these are not—I um, don't have accents I can put on unless they're like remembered to my body. And so, um, because she spoke in her Nigerian accent. If I'm around someone from Nigeria or from West Africa in general, then my voice will go there. And if I, I lived in India, and so if there's somebody from like the Middle East or India or just sounds that have the same sound, you know, like Scottish folks sound like they're from the Caribbean sometimes to me. Yeah. Um, you know, and so like that will, and then the connection between the Caribbean and West African sounds will land in my body. And then I'll return to, to like uh, Yoruba, Ibadan pigeon, you know, and so that's in part the book ended up, and it kind of taught me that I didn't, I don't, I don't think I sat down and was like, I don't have an identity that is Canadian or American. I'm not writing about that. I think I sat down and was writing, um, and uh, I think with both conversations we've been having, folks have been talking about like you start to write, and then the thing finds you. You know, um, and Cosmo was talking about first starting to write, and then I didn't know where it was going to go, and we don't know where they're going to go. You know, and I didn't know that this, like the pavement sweeper, would end up being slightly inflected by um, this, like uh, this is like. Actually, I'm not going to put it on the on the podcast because it's full spoiler alert that I'm not sure I've understood yet. Um, but inflected by a person who couldn't possibly be the person whose voice it was, and yet is completely the person whose voice it was. The identities have no relationship at all, except that this is the voice that was his uncle, who was a pavement sweeper, who um, taught him these things that he learned from his experiences of war before he came here. And the person in real life whose voice started to like you know move into the secondary world there's none of those things at the same you know there's none of those things um and the auntie is um several aunties and like four homegirls and like three dudes and like um but then became became a voice and she decided who she was and was like no you write me like this motherfucker like that's how i sound and i was like Yes, because that's what you do when your aunties tell you what the fuck to do. Um, and uh, maybe I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I might have a bit more of a wannabe status than Hari. Uh, I've always wanted to be 
somebody. Like, I wanted to be Nigerian, but I couldn't be. And I came to America, and I wanted to be American. And I, there was something... Yeah, there's... I, actually, when I was 13, I thought that maybe I could be. And, and there was a sense in America at that time, at least that I, in my naive way, thought that America took all kinds. So you could say you were American, even if you didn't have the right accent or you didn't have the right clothes. And people would take you for your word, even if they didn't think you were cool, which is a different story. But, like, they would, say, they would believe that you were American. And I think things have changed a little bit now. Or, um, and at that time I didn't think, I also didn't, you know, you don't want to be, you want to be different or you want to, or you want to be the same when you're a teenager. But then when I grew older, I wanted to actually like have a place to call my own and I couldn't figure out where that was. And I went to Bangladesh and that wasn't it either. It was in a way, it was kind of like an alien landing. But at the same time, I also found people who were my people. And then when I came back to America after I traveled for seven years, I, um, realized that you could be American and not feel in any way related to a lot of the people around you. You could, you could be American, you could dissent, you could be American and feel really angry at everything that was happening or that everything that America was doing. And maybe it's a little bit in reaction to, you know, like this administration saying you're not American and I want to be like, fuck, no, I am, I can be, or I don't have to be and I can still be here, like I can belong and not, um, yeah, so I, I think there's a lot of different things about that. I felt like it took going away for a long time and then coming back, defending America actually, or actually apologizing for America for a long time um, while I was abroad and coming back and um, feeling that I could be in this space, in this weird more tenuous place than ever. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.